Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tell me your tales. Thanks for downloading this episode and uh, being with me again and letting me fill your ears with another conversation for yeah a bit over an hour. I think this one goes for about an hour and fifteen minutes, and it's with Adam Diddick, the Australian marathon coach. He uh, was in charge of the Australian marathon team at the 2014 Commonwealth Games over in Glasgow, and also the 2016 Olympic Games at Rio. So quite a big get for the podcast um he did say he listens to the show most weeks which is which is pretty cool um and yeah tried to get as many questions as possible into kind of uh suit the listeners as much as possible so hopefully you get a lot of insight out of it it was a great opportunity for a guy like me who's kind of aspiring to be that next uh level of athlete i suppose to be able to talk to the guys in charge of the marathon team when they go to these major competitions so really grateful for his time and had fun talking to him. He's very good at uh, generating conversation is, and his responses are detailed. I don't say much at all, so some people could be happy about that. And um, yeah, it was, it was tough to get a word in because he was so detailed and so deep with his responses, which is something I really appreciate. Adam did pass on a video that he's made of all the images that he took on his camera at Rio. Um, I'll include in the show notes because we got quite deep with that Rio conversation there and some of these images have really from behind the scenes, so I think you'll get a bit out of it. It goes for about 10 minutes, and it's just like a slideshow of different photos that he took from his Rio experience, which is uh, yeah, pretty cool, seeing some of that behind-the-scenes stuff. So I'll include that in the show notes, and hopefully you get a bit of value out of that as well. Anyway, guys, that's enough from me today. Enjoy this chat with Australian marathon coach Adam Diddick. Cheers. Beautiful, mate. Sure. Let's, uh, let's do it. There you go. Yep. Adam Diddick, welcome to our Tell Me Your Tales podcast. Thanks for giving us some time. No worries, Brady. Anytime. All the way from Noosa. Tell us what you're doing up there. Um, well, currently I'm just sort of spending a bit of time on the Gold Coast through Brisbane and, and up at Noosa just to check out a few potential training locations prior to the Com Games. So this morning we, we had a bit of a look at the, the, the marathon course um, and, uh, and like that. And, yeah, just up at Noosa to... Hopefully, see if it'll be an appropriate location for us to to set up just prior to the team getting together at um, in Nudgee in Brisbane. So, 
yeah, no, I've never been up here. I've heard a lot of good things about the running, but thought it's worth me coming up and having a look. And I'm not the kind of guy that likes to take chances on these things. If we can get it right in our hometown, then then we should be doing that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Tell us about the course. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, look, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's it's not an overly complex course, um, but uh, it's nice just to be able to see it and um, get a bit of perspective. It's, it's very similar to what people would experience in the Gold Coast Marathon. So anyone who's run that, would notice a lot of similarities. It's kind of almost run in reverse where they go out um, the opposite direction first and then finish with the um, with the area at the Burley Heads and back um, for the for the latter part of the course. So, you know, it's good. It's, it, there's no reason why it can't be fast if the conditions are good. Um, so, no, I, I quite like the course. So, I always liked it. It's just the Gold Coast is sometimes a bit of a challenging time of year for some of the international crew. Yeah, so no dreaded running past the finish line at 34, 32K, whatever it was. Oh, there is, yeah. It's about it's just short of ten k into the course. Yeah, they run past the finish line. So, yeah, yeah, there there is that. But I mean, uh, you know, you, you've got to be prepared and experienced enough to be able to manage all of that anyway. So that's what we would expect from our top marathoners. Yeah, that's it. Hey, mate, what I usually do is get the guests to introduce themselves. So, do you want to maybe give the listeners a bit of insight? And uh, yeah, feel free to tell us as much or as little as possible about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, first of all, I guess I'd probably describe myself as a failed runner, someone who probably always uh, was probably likely to go into coaching, but I probably did that 10 years earlier than I expected. And I think um, from the coaching side of things, I, I took on uh, an athlete called Jess Trengo when she was 20, and uh, four years later we had her at the Olympics. So a pretty steep learning curve for me. And um, and after London, you know, I always aimed to have two athletes at Rio, and fortunately enough for me, I had another um, sensational athlete in Madeline Hills or Heiner at the time. Um, organised to co- be coached by myself and um, so managed to be going to Rio Olympics with, with Jess in the marathon and Madeline in the 3,000 steeplechase and the 5,000. Um, and from there, it's it's kind of been, you know, a bit of a bit of a dream come true. But, um, you know, a lot, a lot of hard work in between, a lot of um, a lot of challenging lessons along the way and, um, and hopefully... Uh, Hopefully something that sets me up to be able to continue working with athletes at a top level and and getting some really great results out of them. You know, my aim's always been to to sort of try and put South Australia on the map in regards to distance running, and and I, and I feel like we're we're getting a, a really good standard happening in South Australia. And and then I thought, well, let, let's see what we can do in an Australian level and um, see if we can be taken really seriously internationally. And, and I think some of our athletes are doing a great job of that and, and hopefully I can help pushing a few more people up to that standard as well. Yeah, let's go back to the failed run a bit because I think I raced against you, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you win the Eagle Hawk to Bendigo foot race like <laughs> years and years ago? It would have been 2004. Like, 2000, I was going to say 10 years ago, but yeah, that was yeah. correct. Yeah, yep. yeah. So <laughs> you yeah. You know, I did win that fun. one. You had so. some good PBs. You're, uh, you yeah, that was my best race ever. <laughs> um, no, look, I... Um, I guess as a runner, I was I was tracking along okay in South Australia. Um, I think probably like most of the athletes of my generation at that time, kind of felt like we needed to um, move away from Adelaide to to you know progress in our running. A um, few sort of circumstances personally, I decided I'd I'd go to college in America, and I had one year eligibility and went to the University of Memphis, um, and and progressed nicely over there. Didn't do anything amazing. Probably the my, my proudest moment in Memphis was graduating. I, I had to do two years' worth of study in one year. And, and for anyone who's been to college in the U.S., you, you'll know how many credit hours um, subjects are worth. And I 
had to knock off 60 credit hours in one year to graduate, and I managed to pull that off somehow. Um, and so that that was my greatest achievement over there. My, my, my running was was you know not much better than what it was back in Adelaide. And then I came back and spent a year in Adelaide and, and made a few changes within what I was doing. Um, then I, uh, you know, did the smart thing of sending two of my best mates over to college. Um, so I lost my, my, my best training partner, Daniel Matner. Um, and at that stage, Rod Griffin was coaching me out of Ballarat. So when, when Dan went over to the, to the States, I decided, well, I haven't got too much going on here in Adelaide for myself. So um, I just finished university as a teacher. So I decided, well, look, I'll go to Ballarat and I'll be able to get some relief teaching and all the rest of it done there. Um, and um, and so I, I moved to, to Ballarat. So I was very fortunate to see young Collis Birmingham and train with him for a year. Um, and, uh, you know, had a really great coach in Rod Griffin. Um, and that was the year that obviously we had the Eagle Hawk to Bendigo race. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, uh, that I think, uh, Rod said, look, here's a great opportunity, Adam. You can get your name on a trophy with Rob Deekstar and Steve Monaghetti. I thought, oh, this sounds good. So I went down to, um, Bendigo for the day and ran that and had, had, had a good run. Actually, I was pretty happy with that one. Came away and added my name to a trophy with some legends. Um, probably was one of the slowest winning times, but you know, I'll, I'll take it for what it was. And, and not long after that, um, basically entered that summer season. Uh, with some Achilles issues, um, which continued to progress and probably uh, put me in a position where um, where the running wasn't really going to plan over there, and that was really no one's fault. It was more my own and just the injury scenario. So I decided to move back to Adelaide, where I had some teaching opportunities um, put towards me, and moved back to Adelaide. And within a week of moving back to Adelaide, uh, found my found the the woman who ended up becoming my wife, Kate. Um, and uh, and honestly, just sort of went back there, you know, Dan had moved back from the US. He, just like me, had just one year eligibility to take advantage of. Um, and uh, and we continued training together. And at that stage, I had sort of had uh, Sean Crichton take me on as um, as one of his athletes. And uh, and I really loved working with Sean um, and, and probably had a huge influence on my philosophies of training and all the rest of it. And you know, uh, it's, it's hard not to trust a guy who, who achieved what he did with his running, and I think you get a lot of confidence working with some at that level. Unfortunately, I, I can't really offer that level of confidence to my athletes, so I kind of have to rely on my coaching because um, I certainly don't have the, the results to back myself like a legend like Sean did. But certainly got a lot of experience from him um, and, and kind of got back, and, and the Achilles didn't really get back to what I would hope was good. And with Sean, I started to progress some good results. I think the best I got in national cross was about 11th or 12th. Um, and But the next day after that, it really flared up badly. That was in Perth, I think, 2000 and – well, that would be um, 2005. Um, and, and Or even six might have been. Um, and then from that point, I was based with um, going in for surgery on my Achilles. So – at that point, I, I sort of had a chat to a mate of mine, a guy called Toby Medlin, who sort of was just a, a bit stressed about um, his running, and and I, you know, um, naively sort of suggested, well, look, if you want some help, I'm happy to help you. I don't think I'm going to be doing much for six months, and I'd like to stay involved actively in the sport. And took on Toby. I think he was about a 404, 407 sort of 1500 runner at the time. And uh, that night went home, wrote three months of training for him and got out on the bike and did every step of the way with him on the bike because I couldn't run. Um, and it, Toby went on that year to win the state champs and run 354 and go on the race at nationals. And, um, and yeah, we were, we were pretty stoked with that. And I think uh, from that point, at the end of that year, uh, my wife or my, my girlfriend at the time, Kate, her coach, Roger Pedrick, was, um, was stepping away from coaching. 
So um, they sort of scouted a number of coaches in Adelaide, and then I sort of said, "Look, if you if you want some help, I'm have a chat to your, your crew, and if you want me to coach, I'll, I'll take it on." And so that that was me starting on with the group. Um, and then probably about four to five weeks later, Jess came back from overseas, and that's when I met her uh, for the first time. I'd never met her before that. She came back to Adelaide after just travelling with her boyfriend for the time, and um, and sort of came back to a new coach, and that was me. And we started working together from that point, and um, yeah, I, I guess that's just the, the history of it and the story of it. So that that's where we've gotten to today, and we're probably that's about nine, almost ten years, I think, um, of working together from that point. Yeah, you strike me as a guy just from those conversations and stories that um, very much lives his life by I'll have a crack at that. You know, the move to you know obviously not lighting the world on fire when you're running, but the move to Ballarat's a pretty serious move, and. Um, I think just probably your approach to getting into coaching, pretty serious as well, but you just kind of put your hand up and jump straight in. Yeah, I think probably in my younger years, I definitely wasn't like that. And I was a pretty shy and timid sort of kid. Um, and uh, and I think my uh, my effort to put my hand up and go over to the US was probably the start of throwing myself in the deep end and trying to make it work. And, uh, and you know, I wasn't always positive over there, but um, but the experience on a whole... Um, made me grow up a little bit, and I guess coming back to Adelaide, um, I, I, I ended up moving over to, to Ballarat. Funny enough, I, I won one of the South Australian Athletic League races, um, the Bay Sheffield Select Mile. Yeah, um, handicap race. When, yeah, handicap race, and um, and I won two thousand dollars. I thought, right, I've got enough money to move to Ballarat <laughs> now. And and anyone who's moved into state or moved anywhere kind of recognises after pay after you pay the bond to you. Yeah, your rental or whatever have you, you really haven't got much money left over yeah. after three thousand. So it was a pretty difficult first six months. Uh, but managed to find my feet and um yeah, probably still hadn't really matured enough by the time I left Ballarat um with Rod and um and sort of came back to Adelaide and and I, and I guess I've probably had a bit of a fire in my belly after seeing things in Ballarat and Melbourne and recognising look, it nothing over in those places was that much better than what we had in Adelaide. Um there's nothing magic in the water that makes them run better. And I just sort of thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can to try and um, help South Australian running, and certainly at the point where I, where I started coaching more, there was really fuel to my motivation was to to improve South Australia's sort of running. Um, I know in the past, in the 70s and 80s, they were relatively strong, and it's kind of you know I thought there was no reason why it's a fantastic training environment um, why we couldn't get back there. And I guess it's probably the one thing that I'm really proud to be associated with what, what Jess has achieved. It's kind of given people in Adelaide, again, that belief that you don't have to move into state to, to be a good runner. Adelaide's actually a perfectly fine location to run. Um, yeah, you might have to be prepared to step into state and race from time to time, but we even sort of organise races now where, where that's not so much a case. So, um, no, I'm really proud of what South Australia is doing in the running, and you know we've got some good coaches, um, you know, beginning to show what they can do. And certainly, I think we've always had the talent in South Australia, and um, and we're starting to work out what to do with it now. So that's been really positive, and yeah, yeah. You mentioned it wasn't in the water, and obviously not in facilities. But what was it like? Just the culture of Ballarat and Melbourne, or what really kind of, um, I guess, stuck out to you when you left? What were we taking home with you? Um, yeah, look. I, not not to downplay those locations. I think I think they've just always grown up with having people at that level um, around them. Whereas South Australia, there's, there was that bigger lull where we didn't have that, and so just being surrounded by people. I, I still remember going up as a junior to Falls Creek just to, and and it wasn't so much training up there. What certainly wasn't the attitude effect after ten days, but it's just seeing what guys like Steve Monaghetti, Lee Troop, 
would do in training, seeing how they approached it and taking that back with me, that made the difference. And and likewise, it was seeing the approach of a coach like Rod Griffin, who I, I thought was an absolutely sensational coach and, and really knew how to tune in and, and, and get a lot out of me, that um, that made the difference. And I, I just – I probably took more away from – having Rod coach me, um, and I really enjoyed his coaching style, um, than, than anything else. I don't think there's anything magical about any of those places. I think it's just that you've got people there who believe they can do it. And I think in Adelaide, there was such a long time between that, that we probably lost that belief that had to happen out of Adelaide. And like I said earlier, um, we kind of felt like we had to move into state to progress. And, um, when I did that and felt like that wasn't the answer, it was, the training I did, it was the, my, my coach's approach that made me the runner I was. And, you know, I mean, I, I got down to some times I was relatively happy with. I, I got down to a sub-350, 1500, and that was what I was most proud of um, under Rod's coaching. And um, and, and I, I was pretty stoked with that. I, I, you know, I guess in that point of my career, you know, that was a huge win for me. I didn't think I'd ever do that at that stage of my career. I was already mid-20s. You know, if you're not showing the sort of uh, potential to do that by then, you, you likely um, may not have that in your you know, certainly a bit different over the endurance events, but not over the 1500 and those sort of areas. So, yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence to, to be able to do some of those things and, and bring some of those training styles home. Yeah, and you were pretty handy over five. You raced Adapec a couple of times too, didn't you? Like a mid-30s, uh, Zatapec? Just, just the once, yeah. So I, so I had one go at Zatapec and, and literally, um, literally I remember we had Craig Mottram come to town and, uh, and he did a run with me in Adelaide. And I, I was coaching at this stage. And I said, oh, really, one day I would have loved to have run Zatapec. Well, he goes, well, go for it. I said, okay. yeah, okay, easy said than done, Craig. I don't even know how I'm going to get in the damn race. Um, and he said, <laughs> he actually said to strange. me, you just, you just go and train and I'll take care of it. And <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if Craig had a word to anyone about it, but I, but I, 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 uh, I got into it and, um, and was probably in the best 10K shape of my life and probably was really looking at a sub. Uh, 30 that night and I just remember it pissing down with rain yeah, and I, I, I gave watching. and I was about 30 and a half and, and I, was, I was pretty stoked with that I, you know I, I, I didn't have much more that night and and again the Achilles flared up at that point the very next day I could barely walk and that didn't change for many weeks after that so I kind of knew that that was about the extent I was going to get to so I was going to get to this major race you know put everything on the track and then um, the Achilles would flare up and at that point it was the opposite Achilles what I had surgery on and, and that was really challenging going through the surgery and the rehab and I didn't know that I had the ability to go through that again uh, nor did I kind of want to I mean mm. my my Achilles had surgery still wasn't perfect and and my thoughts at that point were turning to okay I want to be a father one day and run around with my kids and running's just not worth it for me anymore I don't want to risk being able to do that and even now like I've got two kids and I'm running around, and half the time I'm running around, you know, with an Achilles, it's hurting, but just going, you know what, bugger it. Um, this is what I want to be able to do. Uh, if it means I can't run with the crew tomorrow, if it means I can't do my long runs, if it means I don't get to run that marathon, this is more important to me these days. So, yeah, it really doesn't bother me so much anymore. Yeah, great response. And do you think the coaching kind of replaced that elite, sub-elite kind of um, athlete that you were pursuing? Uh no, not at all. Um, I, I probably thought that was a good replacement at the time. Yeah. Um, but the more I've gotten into coaching, the the greater um, recognition I have for the complete difference between coach and athlete. Um, I I really advocate for coaches being non-competitive. I have no interest in you know being a better coach than another coach. I have no interest in having the top squad. I have no interest in having more athletes on a team than anyone else. My only interest is in getting the best out of my athletes. And I think by doing that, not being that emotional sort of character within it, I'm 
probably putting myself in a position to make better decisions with those athletes. Um, if I was trying to beat other people like I like I used to do as an athlete, I wanted to beat so-and-so and the rest of it, I, I'd probably make decisions with that in mind more so than what the best thing is for the athlete. And I, I don't want to be tempted by that. So, yeah, I, I really – I never buy into any of that. And my only interest with the coaching is to get them better. Um, and if they get to experience the, the um, level of competition that they're after, then you know, I'm, I'm stoked. And was so, it like that from day one in your coaching career or did it take a bit of progression to, to get to that view? Because yeah. that's important, like leaving your ego at the yeah. door a bit and, um, yeah, getting to that stage is, um, yeah, it's a great response, but was that obviously a bit of progression to get there? Yeah, no, it was definitely um, a level of coach maturity that sort of took that. And I sort of reflected on that a little bit lately with a few things and, and recognised what I used to be like as a coach compared to where I'm at now. And, and, um, and yeah, look, I, I might have said that I wasn't um, uh, sort of competing with other coaches, but I think when you first start out, you, you do have a little bit of insecurity about what you're doing and you kind of want to prove yourself. And, and I guess, you know, the one thing we've got to recognise with coaching is we kind of – trying to sell a, a, I guess, a version of faith to our athletes, that they have faith in what we can do and uh, with them and, and that we do know what we're doing. And I think in those early stages, you're trying to prove that to yourself and the other people around you, and that's kind of what draws athletes to getting those results. So I think I think you do essentially have that when you start off coaching, but it's something that as you mature, you start to realise it gets more in the way than it assists you. Um, and and you start to see things from a different perspective Um you know, I mean, at the same time, I do enjoy my athletes having good results. I'm, I'm not a priest. I'm, I don't believe that I should not be allowed to enjoy that. Um, but I, I don't enjoy it for the reason of, oh, you know, oh, we kicked ass today. It's more a case of, you know, oh, if if they finish the race, they achieve what they want, and they're they're happy with what they what they achieved, and um, and they're they're happy with what I I they asked me to do and what I was accountable to as a coach. Um, and they, they feel that I, I facilitated that role well, then then I'm happy. So that, that's the most important thing. Do you find that sometimes difficult looking at other coaches and especially in this day and age where, you know, Instagram is kind of everyone's highlight reel and Facebook posts and, you know, you're trying to run a business as a coach as well um, mm-hmm. to not pump up your own athletes' tyres when they perform well? Uh, yeah, look, I, I guess the way I see their result is that I, I'm not actually involved in their result. So um, I, I've had this conversation with Richard Huggins, who's, a, yeah. who's, a, who's always been a good mentor of mine, and I said to Richard, like, I almost feel a little bit uncomfortable when, when say, someone like Jess runs a good result and people uh, say, oh, congratulations um, on Jess's result. And I, you know, I find that a little bit uncomfortable because I, I didn't start, I didn't finish. Um, I actually, from the time they, they start and finish, that's all them. Um, I, I'm only involved in their preparation, so... You know, if someone turned around and said, oh, look, you, you did a good job of preparing them, um, you know, well done, then I'll, I'll sort of appreciate that a little bit more. But ultimately still, I mean, I'm just a guide. Um, if the athlete chooses not to not to follow what I what I suggest, well, that's their choice. I can't make them do anything. So, um, you know, I guess it, it is up to them. I mean, I, I've probably been in a position where, where I've, given some of my best coaching efforts to athletes and the results still haven't come. And I've sort of recognised that some of the areas that they are failing to address and they're failing to be accountable as an athlete are in their control and not mine. Um, all I can be is accountable to all the areas that I've said I will be. Um, and uh, and, and that, that's what I go from. So if I've ticked all those boxes, um, then I'm you know, then then that that's what I'm responsible for. But certainly when they get on that start line, my role was just to prepare them to get there. 
um, and what they do from the start to the finish line, they own themselves. Yeah, do you feel a bit powerless at times as well? Like I can imagine, you know, Jess at a Con Games or an Olympics or um, something like that being having such an input in the lead into it, as you kind of said, with all the training programs. But then once that gun goes, it's there's absolutely nothing you can do to help her implement her race. Yeah, yeah that's exactly do right. Do your head in, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it does get a bit nerve-wracking, I'll, I'll admit to that. Um, I guess someone like Jess is a bit of a um, different case. Yeah. I mean, I'm very confident in her to deliver um, – you know, what we know she's capable of. I mean, I, I kind of reference Jess in the category of if I get her close to the shape she needs to be in, she'll take it to the next level. Um, and that, that's what makes her such a damn good competitor and um, why she's so consistent over the marathon. Um, she thrives when she gets in those competitive situations. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, you are powerless. And I think sometimes you, <laughs> you, you see the coaches screaming their lungs out, giving instructions and, and advice during the course of the, the race. And, you know, nine times out of ten, the athletes will say to you afterwards when you say, oh, did you hear me say this? They'll say, no, I didn't even hear you. You know, mm-hmm. they're so focused in the zone of what they're supposed to be doing. And, and you know, I, I, I like that they're like that. I, I like that they're prepared. I mean, the conversations that we have um, prepare them to be able to make those decisions, to be able to have that focus. That's that's The job's done there. Um, they get on there and, and they need to be prepared. So um, I, I really – I'm proud of them when they manage those situations because, honestly – um, that that probably shows more respect to the level of coaching and, and interaction we have as coach and athlete than me telling him, oh, kick now or do this or do that. I mean, you know, like they, they have to be independent at that point. If they're not, then you kind of fail them as a coach to prepare them effectively enough. And, you know, I, I had this um, – it was a bit of a challenge um, with, with Madeline. Um, you know, I think she was kind of looking for almost a more definitive kind of approach and race plan to some races, but – I kind of feel that you don't have that control over what others can do and what scenarios might play out during the race. And and my best approach is, well, let's talk about the scenarios that may happen and how you might respond. And and I more more often than not would like to hear how they will respond. And then if I want to address that, if they think they they could approach it in a different manner, then I'll, I'll say, well, have you thought about maybe doing this or the strength of that athlete may mean that you could handle it in this way. So, and, and I guess my viewpoint on that is sometimes you only get a split decision to make a split second to make a decision during the race. And at least I guess if we've almost visualised, almost played it out in a scenario that we've discussed, that decision is going to be made a bit quicker, and the influence of that move is going to be less. So, um, and likewise, um, I guess in London, uh, world champs for Jess. I mean, one of the major things we said to her was, um, you know, in our discussion, this was this was much earlier than we'd ever have our race discussions. Was um, was in St. Moritz. She said, oh, look, I kind of like to hear how you think I can race this. And we sat down in the coffee shop before we even left St. Moritz. It would have been a week out from the race. And, and I sat down and she goes, well, how do, you, how do you think I can handle this? And I, I said, well, how would you like to race? And she goes, well, I'm feeling pretty good about what, what we're doing. And I said, well, I think this is the kind of race where you can, you can take a risk and, and go with the leaders. Um, and she says, good, because that's what I was hoping to do as well. <laughs> So, I mean, sometimes when you understand each other as well as probably Jess and I do now, um, you kind of fall into that discussion is quite mutual because um, because you kind of know where the athlete's at, 
and 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 often I think we're at this point where she's almost looking for a bit of reinforcement from me, mm. not a definitive direction and decision on on how she should run it. Um, but she she obviously gets confidence from from hearing that I I agree that that's a good approach. So um, yeah, she likes to put me in the position to 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 say it first. But you know um, I think I've got a pretty good understanding of her now that that we can work those things pretty well. I think one I spoke to Jess after Melbourne half the other week, and she was telling me how she wasn't looking at her watch splits, just kind of going with the pace and you kind. Kind of spoke then about a marathon plan going with the leaders and I think um, it's very kind of good to hear guys at your level talking about um, listening to the body and going with the pace and having a race and not getting caught up too much with splits and watches and um, you know, yeah. what it's going to look like on Strava afterwards and things like that so do you want to maybe just go on like is that um, something common with your athletes or something you believe in a bit of a philosophy? Oh, look, I think most trained athletes should have a fairly good understanding of their body, um, you know, especially at that level. I mean, you do enough training, and I, I certainly reference um, – I don't reference VO2 max or, you know, I do reference threshold a little bit because it's a little bit um, specific opposed to, um, you know, certain paces. But <clears throat> more often than not, I'll sort of reference most of their training to their to their race pace intensity and um, – and often what uh, what used to occur is people would sort of line up and say, okay, so my 5K pace is this, so I need to run this 400 split in this. And and I'd constantly be coming back to saying, okay, with the level of fatigue you've brought into this session, with the conditions that you've got today, with the fact you're running in racing flats and not spikes and you're running on a dirt path, um, take all of that into consideration. When you run your PB, you're generally freshened up, you're in spikes, you're, you're more than likely in an optimal position to, to run a fast time. You, you can't expect those times in training. So, um, so yeah, I do like them to tune into what their body says. And you know, sometimes I come back and say, oh, I was a bit slower than I should have been. I said, well, did it feel like the intensity it should be? And they said, yeah. I said, well, you hit the mark. So, um, yeah, and, and with Jess, with the regards to marathon pace, I've always sort of referenced things in a specific phase very much to marathon pace. And, and I'd probably say the one I was proudest of and, um, and I probably totally unexpected was what Kane Corns did in, in his marathon. From, from my point of view, I – I was very concerned that he was going to stuff up the first half, um, and we spoke at lengths about this. And I, you know, and um, and I said, no, you just need to hit it evenly. And and still, you know, even after those discussions, I thought it might not happen, and he just hit it so brilliantly. And I think that's that he's responsible for why he got that result the way he did, because um, for a guy who was probably, you know much, much of a novice runner to some of those things, he uh, he he controlled it um, <laughs> better than I thought he would. So. Um, you know, each of those guys sort of, you know, when they go into races like that, recognise that. But sometimes it's just a case of you've got to respond to your competition. You've got to recognise what you're after out of a race. I mean, if you're looking specifically at a time, then sometimes you need to give yourself a bit of feedback on the time. But it needs to be feedback, not a driver. I mean, if you look at down at your watch and you're a bit slow, but you're giving it what you believe is the right amount of intensity, then maybe you've got to accept that that's what the pace needs to be right that day. So you can't just be reckless and just totally... Um, governed by um, by what your pace is, and and I, I don't I don't honestly believe that Garmin's are accurate enough for you to be really consistent with that. Mm. Um, so you know we know that there's you know a percentage out, so why take it as gospel? And we know that certain conditions, running through buildings and all this sort of stuff, um, can make a difference. And in in Berlin Marathon, I had an athlete there, Jules Bennett, and she said uh, she really got lost in a Garmin through that period. And I just said straight away, don't ever rely on your Garmin for, for your accurate feedback. You can use it as a guide, but it's not accurate. She said running through the buildings, it really just was way out. And I said, that, that's why we don't follow it, because we just can't rely on it being accurate enough. 
yeah, or just run with a stopwatch screen on and use the K markers on course, which have been yeah. measured appropriately. Yeah, hey, yeah, um, more often than not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, you never know, do you? I want to get back to the the decision to become a full time coach and go away from school teaching. I'm a school teacher myself, and yeah. I think it's um pretty brave. You would have been probably at the top of the pay chain, um, pretty good at teaching after being there for eight or nine years. So you would have known what you're doing, pretty comfortable position to be in, um, you know, good money. And then the decision to pursue coaching full time, which is quite a risk. Yeah. I mean, look, I, it's paid I, off, I, I but mean, yeah. Oh, I mean, Hopefully, well, maybe. <laughs> coach of the year, you've gone to the Olympics um, as a coach. Yeah. You've got some good stuff yeah. left, you know. Well, I mean, for, for me, um, I was, I was working at St. Michael's college, which, um, which I have, uh, I had permanency at, and I'm, I'm still actually employed by them. I'm I'm on leave, um, so so I'm not not totally out of it. But um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I basically, you know, to to give a bit of perspective to how it came about for me uh, last year, I came back from the Olympics, and it was a pretty tough year. And and I, I've I've said you know fairly openly to, to some people, you know, when they've asked me about it, I said, look, I, I basically went to Rio and came back, and I decided three weeks out from Rio that I'd come back and I wasn't going to coach anymore. I had enough. It was a fairly stressful year for me. Um, Can I just stop you there and ask why? Like, what was the – obviously, that's a pretty big call. Yeah, look, I mean, it's hard. I mean, so it's hard to explain to people because you kind of look at, um, you know, going to that level as, as a bit of a pinnacle. But, I mean, you don't get there easily. And yeah. there's many, many challenges along the way. And I and it took a big toll on me that year. And I had many sleepless nights. And, and I um, – Probably more than anything, I saw the way it was negatively impacting on my family. Um, mm. Like I said, I've got two kids, and um, at that stage, my, my wife was, was heavily pregnant when I went to Rio and prior to that. So, um, you know, it was, it was quite a challenging year um, in many regards. And you know, without going into details on, on why, uh, I had to sort of manage that. And I just sort of thought to myself, I, I, I don't want to um, constantly be feeling like I'd um, like I, I was that year and I was on edge a lot and you know um I think that's just the the challenge of anyone who pushes himself to the to a level that's uh, uncomfortable and I guess that's mm. where we where we succeed more often than not but I I was in that situation I mean you've got to remember it's a, it was a new thing for me I, I had this time two athletes and it took a lot of energy when I had one athlete um, going to Olympics so having two was another, you know, there was a lot of energy spent with that. Um, and, and, you know, let's, let's be honest. I mean, the years weren't going, it wasn't going pretty for both Jess and Maddie. Um, you know, Jess, uh, had, a, had a fractured foot. Um, and, and, and I, and I will always take a level of responsibility when my athletes are injured. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I felt times where I, I probably should have said more to, to prevent it. Um, and then Madeline went over to, to Europe and wasn't having good races. And so it's not easy to sort of absorb that. You, you do develop a level of resilience by going through that, but it's not necessary that you rock up to those moments in your life with that level of resilience in you. So, um, so I, I, I battled through that, and and I guess by the time you're getting to an Olympics, you're kind of fraying. Um, so I had to try and pull myself together um, before I left, um, but it, it was challenging and. Um, and and you know look I mean even even to the point where our very last session with Jess before she went to Rio she said oh look I'm pretty sure my foot's fractured again and I had to go oh geez this is this is something we'd been building for and I had put um, a fairly significant emphasis in Jess's career on Rio uh, knowing that that was a good chance for that to be a real pinnacle of her running career Um, and I want I'd planned for that moment for probably 
um, six years. So to see that things were crumbling around us, you know, that, that's not an easy thing just to go, oh, it's all good. So, you know, that, it was challenging me to deal with that and not to mention that um, uh, Madeline also got diagnosed with a fracture in her foot just before we went into the holding camp. So there I was going to the holding camp with two athletes, both oh, with fractures right. in their feet. <laughs> so, so there we were. We had to really get creative come up with some plans to get them to the day and be able to allow them to perform. And, and with Jess, you know, it's no easy feat to go and run a marathon on a foot that's already fractured. Um, and, uh, and she was fairly confident in that, and I'd, I'd back her judgment on that. She's a, she reads her body very well um, and is a very smart individual uh, when it comes to all of that, being a physio herself. Um, and Madeline, you know, we knew it wasn't severe at that point, but any, any kind of bone stress is severe enough. So, And it's hard for me not to take... Um, you know, take that on my shoulders and go, well, geez, have we completely stuffed this up this time? And so we got to, to Florida, and there I was, our beauty, we had an older G, and, and uh, used that quite effectively um, and got the girls to those final stages so that they, they could run well enough to get on the start line. Now, Jess, I was I was uh, blown away by her performance. Yeah. and and look, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to do that off of what would be 60 to 70% of her training in the months leading into that was cross-training, not running. And I think people have to get perspective on that. We had to basically say 12 weeks out, which would probably be the signal of that to um, get, getting close to our specific phase um, of training. Uh, we still can't really run much. Um, and, uh, and I just said to her, look, you have to start recognising this cross-training is your marathon preparation. Uh, this scenario is not going to allow you to do and measure everything the way you have in the past. We have to uh, manage it in a different way. Um, and then, and then, like I said, Madeline wasn't getting the results. And even though it wasn't stressing me too much in the early stages, because I thought, well, I wasn't expecting her to run well in, in May. I expected mm, her to run well good. in August. And um, she had gone pretty well domestically, but uh, had a bit of a niggle late just before nationals, um, to the point where she almost didn't run nationals. Uh, and we wanted to give her a chance just to secure her position. So um, she ran the steeple there and got that ticked off. And we, But then we went into Florida and, yeah, had to sort of manage some things. Her confidence was a bit low after having a um, DNF at the London Diamond League. And um, so basically we recognised she needed some confidence. She got a lot of confidence from her sessions. Um, she needed to be able to give those a real good effort. Oh, she wasn't going to rock up in, in Rio with a great frame of mind. Um but at the same time, we had to recognise she was down for a steeple in the 5K, not just to get through the heat of a steeple, and we needed to manage his foot well enough so that she could get through heat and final of the steeple and, and preferably heat and final of the 5K as well. Um, and knowing that the recovery time between the, the, um, the final of the steeple and the heat of the 5K was less than 24 hours, so we really couldn't be going in there with this you know, really tender foot that she couldn't back up on. And running a steeple on a foot that's got a um, bit of stress to it is probably not the greatest idea. It wouldn't be on the top of the list. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we had to manage all of that. And, look, you know, ultimately it was uh, – Rio Olympics was a fantastic experience. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, if people would know that I no longer work with Madeline as a coach. And, um, and I, I think by the time I left Rio, I knew that we weren't going to continue on as coach and athlete. There were a few – Areas that, that we needed to address, and, and we, we when we sat down and discussed it, we recognised it wasn't going to work. So um, so we decided to part ways and move on at that point. Um, so that was a bit of a, a bit of a um, you know hard thing to accept initially, but I, I sensed it and I knew it at that time when we left. But certainly through Rio, everything was just unreal. Um, 
and uh, and Jess had a great result, and Madeline was just phenomenal, um, seventh in the steeple, and and then to back up and run the heat, and then the final of the 5K and come tenth there. I mean, it was it was really best case scenario, um, better than what I could have expected when I was flying off to Florida for the holding camp. So um, I, I was really proud of that. And but still, I mean, it, it was still kind of lingering. It was almost like a hangover from the Olympics. And uh, that's no shock. I mean, uh, most coaches, even athletes, would go through that. I think we probably underplay the, the level of stress and almost that post-event depression that you yeah. get post-event and I came home with a bit of that and it was lingering um but it was really just seeing the athletes that I had at home and seeing these guys who who weren't lining up for the Olympics but were throwing everything at it and you can't help but be motivated and inspired by that and seeing that just goes that's why I love doing this so I got through that point and and within that phase I'd said to my boss because he knew I was really looking for something within athletics to take me out of teaching and you know every year for four years I was taking three or four weeks out out of term three to go overseas to be a part of an Australian team and I think I'd probably outworn that with the school and going and asking for leave during school term had probably run out and we recognised that too. And I said to him, look, don't worry, I'm not going to be looking for anything in athletics. I don't think that it exists. And um, and so it's unlikely. And so he was sort of going, no worries, got Adam locked in. He'll I'm be back. here. We yeah. don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, back in full focus. Principal's which, worst all, nightmare, this stuff. Yeah, well, in all fairness, um, you know, they employ me to do a job and they want my concentration 100% there. And, and I think he realised for much of that that I wasn't there that my, my aim was to be out there as a coach. Um, and so even as an employer, he was very good with me to, to support me, to allow me to do those things. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, I tried to give back what I could, but it probably doesn't add up to what I, what I took as an employee. Um, so, you know, coming into the start of this year, I, I had the opportunity and was, um, was asked if I'd be uh, interested in working with Jared Talent, um, which I was, uh, you know, really surprised that I – that I was uh, asked this question and uh, ultimately never coached a race walker. So it was pretty daunting. Yes. But uh, Another step outside I, um, the comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. And, but I was still excited. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I was damn honoured that, that I, yeah. I was even considered. So um, so I said, well, sure. And But the question was that my time availability needed to be more than what I currently had. And at that point, I was only working point eight as a teacher, so four days a week and one day as a coaching coordinator at Athletic South Australia. Um, and so I, I had a bit of flexibility when I did Athletes South Australia. As long as I got what I needed done, I, I could sort of um, be a little bit more flexible with what I did on that Friday. Um, and, uh, and so I said, yeah, I've got that available, but uh, but it was going to require a bit more than that. And uh, race walkers, I mean, I think we need to appreciate their training, what they put them through is just as hard as any, any marathoner, even sometimes more time-consuming and, um, and taxing. Um, but... You know, there's not a lot of walkers for Jared to go out and walk with. So, um, so the the need for a coach there to be there and be there on the bike, riding with him and helping him out through some of his sessions was was quite important. And so, um, so I had to make that decision, and and we sort of worked out how I could financially afford to do this. And and when I when I crossed the line of where I thought it was was realistic, I um I took the leap. Um, and I still do work as a teacher. I work at Westport Primary. Um, where I teach PE three lessons a week and health the other three more lessons a week, so I have two afternoons there, um, and I'm really enjoying that too. So I, I'm not totally out of teaching, but I'm I'm kind of working about three or four jobs at the moment to, to facilitate what I'm doing. So it's a it's a few it's a bit of a juggling act, but enjoying it and 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 enjoying the opportunity to be able to 
do a bit more with what I really want to do. Um, so I guess, you know, financially, there's it's a different situation, but at the same time, I don't think you can replace the enjoyment of doing something you're really passionate about, and, and that's the opportunity I've got here. And so I've decided to take it and, and uh, roll with it, and my family supported me with it. And, and ultimately, because of that and the flexibility of my days now, I get to spend a bit more time with my kids and attend some of the things that they do, you know, go and see my, my son do bounce, which is his kinder gym and, and those sort of things, which I, I could yeah, never do when I was stuff, t- yeah. Yeah. But it's even like, you know, you can go back to teaching and working full-time as a teacher at a Catholic school or whatever it is, whereas this opportunity um, might not be there in two or three years' time and you don't want to be that guy sitting in the pub in 20 years' time saying, what if? Um, you yeah, I think, I, think I, would have been, I think I would have been rather frustrated if I didn't take this opportunity. Um, and uh, and I think it would have only impacted on me being a teacher. I think I would have been that grumpy teacher that if I was still in the classroom in 10 years' time, I probably would have been one that wouldn't have offered too much to my students because I would have been too disgruntled to be there in, a, in, a, in the right mindset and all the rest of it. And I think there's an importance there to the kids that, you know, that they don't need all your baggage. They don't need your moods. They they need you to be there as their teacher and support them to learn. And, and I started to see some of that coming out in me because um, I wanted to be doing other things and, and I was very keen to – to move out, not because I disliked teaching, because I didn't want to become that teacher. So, yeah. and, the, and the passion obviously just got bigger and bigger for the running stuff. And when that passion goes up, I'm sure the passion to teach probably uh, started dropping a bit because you probably can't sustain that high level yeah. of passion into two kind of jobs in a way. Yeah, and and the frustration too. I mean, you start to recognise that you can't do everything that um, that you um, that you want to do with your coaching. I mean, like just just what I'm doing here. There's just no way I could have done this as a teacher. Um, and I need to recognise how fortunate I am to be able to do this, to be able to go on an international training camp prior to the World Champs. I, I was literally looking at the minimum amount of time I needed to be away in the past, whereas now I can sort of plan it out to, um, to uh, um, you know, to, to be able to do what I wanted, what, what I need to do now. Um, and it just wasn't even an option. It was like, okay, how little amount of time can I take off work, um, mm. you know, so, yeah. Hey, how were you coping through all that kind of Olympic sign of ups and downs and roller coasters with the athlete? Like, did you have a sports cycle, someone you could talk to, or a good mentor? Or I think we yeah, focus I'll... so much on the athlete sometimes you forget about the coaches on the roller coaster with them. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things I really pride myself on is, you know, I, I committed to those two athletes to, to work with them, um, no matter what was going on and no matter how I felt, I needed to be consistent with them and I needed them to to uh, rely on that with me. They're going through incredible amounts of stress and, like I said, it certainly wasn't going to plan for either of the girls and so, um, you know, it's certainly understandable um, when when there, there was some frustrations and, and all the rest of it. I mean, ultimately, I think I couldn't expect um, everyone to, to be, you know, rosy with everything. I mean, ultimately, I'm responsible for their daily training environment. And if things aren't going well, I've got to take responsibility for that. Um, I do and, and, and have for many years continued to work with a sports psych. Um, and and that, that's been, I think, a really important part of me as a coach. Uh, I think people fail to recognise coaches need to perform as well. Um, they need to perform their role. They need to be um, they need to be bang on with what they're doing. I mean, we can't just have these expectations of the athletes to to give their best. We need to make sure we're doing everything we can to be our best. And that comes down to trying to manage your emotions and how you feel and your stresses, so that when the athlete communicates with you, uh, you know, hopefully they don't pick up on on that, that stress. And hopefully, I mean, inevitably they will. I mean, they they get to know you pretty well. 
um, and I and I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit. But inevitably, um, you, you've got to you've got to take responsibility for how you do that. And um, and and I don't know. I mean, it's up to the up to the girls if they felt I did that very well. I, I think um, if anything, it was probably my athletes back here in Adelaide who. Um, who probably uh, missed out on a bit of my um, coaching during that period because I was under, um, I, w- I was putting myself under so much pressure to try and find a way to make this all work for the girls, and um, and ultimately, uh, you know, we, we walked away from it very proud and happy with it. But um, yeah, I mean, like like I said, it, every coach will, will respond to that in different ways, and and I I know what I'm like, and I know I have to take care of certain matters within me to to make sure that I work well. Yeah, and what kind of strategies were you putting in place to deal with that pressure? Because, you know, from the outside of looking into the Olympics, it's a pretty high-pressure situation, and I probably mean more like the the routines with bag checks and getting from one location to the <laughs> other and all that kind of um, technical stuff, and then you've still got to perform on the biggest stage, and you're the guy who's meant to be the level-headed one and not letting the pressure get to the athletes. So talk us through that a bit. Yeah, look, I mean, I... I th- it's it's different. I, I certainly didn't handle it very well in London compared to what I did in Rio. Um, different situations, though. I mean, uh, personal coach in London meant that I, my access was very limited, um, and I let that get to me. And again, that's a lack of maturity as a coach. Um, but I didn't know any different, so I, I guess I had, my expectations were weren't realistic. Um, when I got to Rio, it was different. I was there not only to support my athletes but to, to work with a number of athletes I was team coach for, and that meant working with them, working with their coaches. And I think just I didn't manage my fatigue well enough in Rio, so if I'm critical of myself, that was it. Um, I, uh, um, I, th- I think I've become quite relaxed in that environment now, not not complacent, but relaxed to the point where um, being in that scenario doesn't, doesn't stress me greatly. Um, I, I do acknowledge and recognise that, Things aren't going to be easy, and I think if you do that, you sort of have a better um, resilience to when things are tough. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I think you just you just sort of have coping mechanisms, and and that be um, talking to people um, who who you know will will be there as a, just someone to to, to listen to you. Um, you know, uh, it might be getting out and having a daily run so that you can function better because you just. Mm-hmm relieve a bit of stress i mean i overdid it in rio i mean i i was uh, i was having you know probably four or five not hours of sleep a night um for for the early um days in the in competition because we had um athletes competing in the morning session and the evening session and then you're coming home and you're preparing and, and as a team coach i was trying to provide personal coaches with statistics on on the the athletes who their athletes were running against so you know, I was doing a lot of research at night. Sometimes I wouldn't be getting to bed till one o'clock because I was slaving over trying to provide statistics to, to personal coaches so that they could work best with their athletes. Um, and yeah, like I said, overdid it a bit. Um, I, I think I, I can see that now, but just, you, you're just trying to do the best you can. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I got sick in Rio because I overdid it. Um, and that's my fault. I should have managed that better. So. Yeah. The classroom is uh, probably a good place to deal with pressure and stuff as well. You would have um, moved some of your skills from the classroom into that coaching life. Yeah, look, I mean, I I found teaching quite interesting. Um, I, I didn't really find it that challenging a job, um, and that might be different to other teachers. But I think might have been I was, I've just been exposed to higher, higher, more stressful situations that are probably at sometimes less rewarding. I mean, in the classroom, you get paid really well, as as we've mentioned. I never had any problems with that. I think the conditions of teaching are great. They're, the um, the work I, I really I, I enjoyed it I didn't find it overly taxing but the um, you know as, as a as a coach um, 
you're pushing yourself outside your comfort zone often, um, and you have to. You have to certainly when you're working with with with, with athletes um, that I've been fortunate enough to work with. And um, so, you know, I, I kind of worked in the teaching, and and uh, you know, the teachers are stressing about reports and you know this going on, that going on. I'm going, yeah, it's, it's no big deal because at the same time, I was dealing with probably another classroom worth of. Uh, worth of um, people and that being my athletes I had 30 athletes and you know issues going on out there and I'd be spending my lunch and recess writing training programs um, rather than socializing in the staff room and and getting uh, you know uh, numerous other things done uh, within my day so the teaching load never seemed to be too ridiculous for me I, I kind of was relieved when I when that's all I had to do yeah that perspective is good you're trying to prepare people to race Kenyans uh, not getting worried about all the small stuff that school teaching <laughs> throws at you <laughs> Yeah, sure. let's get on to the coaching because um, obviously having having your expertise and your time, I've got a million kind of, I guess, kind of nuts and bolts questions about coaching. And do you know Julian Spence? He sent me through a few questions as well. So a few of these have come yeah. from, from Julian down in Ballarat. So um, yeah, well, so Julian I, and I, our our our, um, our our relationships probably to the point of we went on a buck show together, and that's that's the most <laughs> we've spoken. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, a, a good mate of ours. Um, and, uh, and and we got really talking a lot about running and those sorts of things. So you know, go for it. I'm interested to hear what he's what questions he's got as well. Yeah, well, the first one we discussed this on a podcast. The one we did leading up to Berlin all the time was kind of thoughts on the traditional Australian um, marathon kind of training. So the Deeks quarters, the Monofartlek, the um, yeah, I guess the kind of shorter, sharper stuff to prepare for the marathon. Yeah, look, I mean, I, th- I think. Um, there's a, there's a lot of discussion about marathon training at the moment, especially in Australia. I think there's a lot of changes happening. I think we can't fail to recognise how well that approach worked. I mean, what what Deke, what Mona did offer that training was phenomenal, and we're not we're not actually having athletes go to that mm. level at the moment. So um, so I, I very much ask the question of why we're trying to change it too much, um, because that was obviously a very very good model. Um, and and you know I speak with with Sean Crichton about this you know the the typical training week of uh, Sunday long run Monday sort of got you know two runs of moderate sort of volume then Tuesday session with a morning run Wednesday you know second long run of the week Thursday similar to similar to Tuesday Friday's your easy day Saturday you know session and and second run and and, and I said to Sean. Um, I feel that nearly everyone in Australia follows a very similar model. Mm. And he said, well, that's because it's a good model. And I said, no, I think you're right. And I think if you look at load management principles, it it really suits very well. And it actually gets the most out of people. Um, but uh, I said, Sean has – I don't know that anyone's tried to significantly change that or evolve that over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and I said, oh, I kind of see the responsibility of this next generation of coaches to, to recognize that model and, and see where we can make enhancements. And, and I've looked at this a lot and, and I was fortunate enough to have Lopez Lamong, um, based in Adelaide, um, yeah. at periods over the last couple of years because his wife was working out of Adelaide. She had a two year contract there. So we got to know, uh, he and his wife quite well. And, um, and so I really delved in a lot of questions about what Jerry Schumacher does with the Bowman Track Club. Um, and they they work on a on a different cycle, a ten day cycle, and uh, that's quite foreign to us here in, in in Australia. And looked at it, tried to implement on many occasions, tried to um, tried to see how we could coordinate things differently. But I mean, it basically comes down to I think in in Australia we've got a working class sort of uh, group of athletes. There are not that many athletes that are full time athletes. So changing your training days, um, removing yourself from your group. 
not having a structured routine on a weekly basis that you can um, you can work within your um, your uni, your, your schooling, your your full time job, which is more often the case than not. Um, you kind of need that routine. So we always end up going back to this, I guess, this you know model of a seven day cycle. Um, and I, I keep saying to people, I probably work more on a fourteen day cycle because I don't think we can get all the attributes we want in that seven days. Um, but I don't remove myself too much from, um, from I guess, that, uh, that model that, that Pat Clohesse sort of originated and, and Chris Wardlaw sort of uh, made, uh, made quite popular through his coaching as well and the athlete he coached. I don't think we should remove ourselves too much from that because it worked very well. Um, I certainly would suggest I, I, I wouldn't say that the training that I give my athletes for the marathon is exactly the same. Um, but I think sometimes I, I sort of witness um, too much of a, a polar opposites of, um, mm. you know, One significantly long tempos and, and uh, you know, huge volume of sessions. And the one thing I do see a lot of people doing when they step up to the marathon is, is thinking, okay, we've got to start, if we're training for a marathon, we've actually got to start doing these massive sessions. And um, from my point of view, when we started training Jess for a marathon, a very first marathon, the volume of her sessions actually went down um, as the volume went up because you, you can't just go, okay, volume up, session volume up. You've got to sort of think about that and go, okay, we need to balance this out. It's only when she started getting comfortable with the mileage that the volume of her training sessions, um, you know, uh, repetition sessions and the likes went up. So, um, you know, I think it's something to be considered there. Um, and now, now we've got a fairly good balance. I mean, we still do have quarters in in our training programs. We still do have monofartlek. Uh, I've uh, I had a joke of um, of a monofart, well, not a monofartlek, but a fartlek session that I kind of uh, have in, involved in my group called the Diddy K fartlek. And and uh, Diddy K comes out of my last name Diddick, where um, where my students in year seven were, were writing raps um, for poetry. <laughs> And they said, can we put you in our rap, Mr. Diddick? And I said, only if you use my rapper name. And they said, what's that? And I said, Diddy K. So, uh, so jokingly, I wrote a fartlek session and named it Diddy K Fartlek. And, and our group now does that, uh, you know, fairly regularly. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and is it pretty similar around. to Mono? Do you mind sharing it for the listeners? Oh, no, there? I don't mind sharing it. It's, it's basically, it still works on, you know, it's not that different to a Mono Fartlek. I'll be completely honest with you, which is why I've never really, you know, just a different uh, name. Made, made it that popular. I mean, um it's uh three minutes then it's um then two by two minutes and then four by one minutes and you you run uh you float the recovery of what you're about to run so after the three minutes you float a two minutes and after the second two minutes you float a one minute so they're the challenging aspects of it and the only reason that came down is one is to try and build it into 20 minutes but at the same time um to um I just felt that a three-minute recovery after the three minutes was too much, so I, I sort of cut that down and played around with it, and that, that's what came up. So, um, you know, a bit of mathematics and a bit of, you know, uh, recognition of the recovery time, and, and we created that. So, yeah. Yeah, so I guess the next kind of question leading on with that stuff is how do you not get caught up with the excess information that's now available online and podcasts from different running coaches all over Australia and the world um, to just stick to your guns and have confidence in what you're doing is working. Yeah, to, to be completely honest, yours is probably one of the only podcasts I listen to and it's because <laughs> I enjoy hearing from 
the athletes that I know and, and I like hearing their perspective on things and uh, and all the rest of it. But I don't really fall into the category too much. I mean, Steve Magnus, um, yeah. a podcast that I, I would listen to regularly in the early days, but after meeting Steve, I, I now have him as a phone conversation, so I'm really lucky like that. So if I've ever got a question about things, I'm, I'm more likely to um, – to, to give him a call and have a chat about it. And, and, and we, we um, get on quite well with regards to coaching. And we've actually just started a, um, something two weeks ago uh, called Coaching with Craft, where it's um, uh, a YouTube uh, episode, um, one each week, where, where there's four coaches, myself, Steve Magnus, um, Danny Mackey, who's from Brooks Beast Track Club, um, and, uh, and a guy called, uh, called John, who... Um, basically, uh, we just get a coaching question and 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 throw it out there uh, to all four of us. We we all send in a video to Steve and he puts it together and puts it on YouTube and um and and we sort of just have a bit of fun with answering those questions and it's really open to any coaches to to throw questions to us that, that we can then answer and we'll just make that the theme of our week. So you know we have just sort of our our role is to answer the question in one to four minutes to to put towards the video and we all we all add our own little different spin on it. Well, that goes back to that sharing, kind of making each other better and not getting in a competitive kind of relationship with other coaches, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and look, Steve, Steve's a great mind to work with. And, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think I know all there is to know about coaching. I don't think I'll ever get to that. But there's certainly areas like the sciences which I do my best to understand and I've probably got enough knowledge to keep up with the conversation. But, you know, having access to a guy like Steve, uh, Philo Saunders as well is an amazing resource. Yeah. Um, just, you know, I've got, and even Eileen Robertson at Sassy. Um, and um, yeah, Ned Brothy Williams. I've just got these great, great people around that. You know, should I want something of a more sciencey sort of nature to to explain a few things? I've got great minds to to sort of tap into, and and that that's that's been very fortunate for me to have that. But I'm I'm not your guru science um, sort of person. I'm I'm the guy that failed science in school and sort of worked pretty hard to try and get on top of it, and and now I really enjoy learning about it. But I'm never going to be at the level of an exercise physiologist, and I, I, I don't think I need to be to be a coach. I think they're, they're separate things, you know, being able to understand and take advice and guidance from people in the science sort of realm um, and then be able to apply and use it is, is another thing, and I think that's what coaches are, are responsible for. Yeah, you haven't been on Let's Run forums today. Renata Canova's been on there um, dishing out some massive comments about marathon training <laughs> sessions. Yeah, look, I've read stuff in the past, and and I think it all all needs to be realistic um, for some of the athletes that Renata Canova coaches. I mean, you know, it all comes down to a level of what each athlete can handle. I mean, I I know that uh, I know that even the training I gave Madeline, um, you know, leading in the Olympics, uh, she probably would have had the lowest volume um, training out of anyone that she got on the start line next to. But that's what her body could handle at the time. And I, I, I you know, I'm excited to see what she does over the coming years um, as as she develops as a runner. But you know, we we had we had less than three years from when she said she wanted to get back in athletics to get to the Olympics. So. All of that stuff's irrelevant to me. I, I don't really have as much of an interest in what everyone else is doing rather than what the progressions are that are important to the athlete I coach. So um, people say, you know, do I keep all my training programs private? And and I don't. If anyone was to sit down and go through them, I'll open up all my books. I'll, I'll, send you the, I'll send you all the Excel spreadsheets of all the training programs. But what's important about it is delivering it with context. Um, Strava, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually one of those coaches that's against Strava and 
Um, and I and I really, you know, um, yeah, not not that Kane Corns knows that too much at the moment, as you guys would be following him. But um, I want to get to that because no... he's smashing some stuff on Strava yeah. way too close to his marathon. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll have a chat about yeah. that. But, um, <laughs> basically, um, you know, I I just think it's it's irresponsible for people to go and look at things like that and be influenced by it. I mean, it gives you good ideas, gives you some food for thought, but ultimately, everything you do has to be in relation to what your attributes are and what you need i mean uh, you can approach a marathon in so many different ways but you know what i do with jess is is specific to what's right for her so um as we build up her training it's what was what could she do yesterday and what do we need to get her to in six months time all right let's look at the progressions we need to do to get from here to there it's irrelevant what what other people do um and the amount of speed work we do as opposed to tempo work I mean, again, it comes down to what are the attributes that we're going for. I mean, for, for Jess leading into this year, it was about teaching her body how to run a fast marathon. So um, we took a very different approach to, to the marathons this year um, and, and, um, and, and we'll take a, a, a you know, rather different approach with appropriateness for what we want Com Games to be for her next year and what attributes we feel she needs to be successful. So each marathon is not just a mirror image of the last preparation. It's very different to that. Um, and each, each athlete that, um, that I coach towards it will have a very different approach. There, there will definitely be similarities. Um, and even with some athletes, if they're training for similar events, have similar attributes, they'll, they'll have what looks almost like a carbon copy, but there'll be subtle changes in each of their programs that are specific to that individual. So they, they get their own personalized program with that in mind. So. Yeah, um, what what Kane did is very different to what Jess has done. Yeah, and um, with the, with those elite guys though, do you have like a staple like key marathon workout? You know, four or five weeks or three weeks out or whenever that that generally everyone does, and it gives you a really good indication of what kind of shape they're in. Yeah, generally, I mean, and and it's one that that Jack Cole Revy yeah, shared the fifteen k one. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's basically designed to be three by five k, and and this this I think people need to recognise is not something we're looking for a mas- massive physiological advantage on, or, or benefit from. We're basically and and look, no doubt you'll get something from it. I mean, any time you run, you're getting a benefit from it. Um, but ultimately, for us, it's about checking in as to what we think the marathon pace will be, um, and what's realistic. So. When we do the three by five k, it's set up to be um, the middle five k of that that segment is supposed to be done at what we believe from the training done will be the marathon target pace. Um, the first five k will be um, five seconds per kilometer slower, and the the third one will be five seconds per kilometer faster. Now, the the idea of that is to to strap on the heart rate monitor. That's crucial in this point. Um, doing that without without the heart rate monitor is pointless. Um, because what we're looking for is at what pace actually really stresses them. So let's say, um, let's say Jack, when he was doing his, um, three by five K was looking good and, and fairly steady and comfortable through the first five K. The second five K, it really spiked. Then we go, okay, maybe we're over, uh, you know, we're, we're biting off more than we can chew. Maybe that pace isn't right for you. Um, or it might be the opposite. Maybe we don't see too much of a significant rise in heart rate, and then we go into the third 5K, and again, we don't see a real significant rate of heart rate. Well, okay, now we've just recognised that potentially the pace range can be faster than what we initially thought. So generally, I don't like to say, okay, you're hitting 330s. It'll be, okay, your range is between three... Um, 325 and 330 or 330 and 335 and through doing that session we get a pretty good understanding of that um we've done it a little bit differently um on different for different circumstances so 
um, for, for Jess, um, she's done it before all marathons except for her last one. Um, and that was simply because she had a half marathon a couple uh, or probably in a similar time out to when we did that session. I'd just be putting it in there for the for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, and I think we got enough feedback from the Gold Coast Half Marathon that we didn't need it. But that was the only marathon world champs that we didn't do the 3x5K. Um, Jack Colreevy before um, before Lake Beware actually did something which reflected he was capable of far more than what we initially thought. Um, and, and, you know, not that he'll say because he doesn't like to make excuses or anything, but he didn't have the greatest day in Lake, Lake Beware and, and so we're still confident there's a, there's a much better run, and, uh, run there and he, he may not like me sharing that, but at the end of the day, you know, that, that's what this session gives you. And, and Kane, in actual fact, um, I had him do the session. He was in Melbourne for um, the AFL Grand Final and, and uh, Trade Radio and um, all that sort of stuff for the AFL. So he was based in Melbourne. And so that's a pretty key session, and I was really keen to see it paced right. So Tim Crosby helped us out and jumped on the bike with him. And um, and Kane's last 5K was, was, was actually much faster than we thought he could run. Um, and so we were pretty confident in the pace. Um, he hit it bang on. Um, it gave us all the indications that he could run that pace. And I actually gave him um, a pace that, that would probably give him uh, a range between 232 and 235. So we were pretty confident that he could run 235 at that point. And it just came down to him managing it on the day. Um, and I guess one other way that, that Jess and I have done it um, is, uh, you know, certainly when she had her foot injuries, we had to be a little bit careful. So we actually cut it out a little bit that she only ran a 5K in the middle one, but she ran like 3K on either side. Um, and then leading into the London Marathon earlier this year where she ran a PB, yeah, big run. There was she did a straight 15K that day without any recovery. It's generally three minutes recovery in between. Um, but she did a straight 15K, and that was simply because there wasn't much availability for a long, sustained race effort. So we said, okay, let's focus on this, still picking it up every 5K, but it's going to be continuous. And when she came back with her heart rate being lower than it had been in the past and her pace ended up being faster, we knew that she was definitely in PB shape. We had no doubt about that. So it gave us good confidence. So I haven't yet had a situation where it's totally blown up, Jack, before World Champs, it had kind of blown out, but that was off of the back of a really large training week. So we're kind of um, recognising the fact that, that that fatigue would impact on some of those heart rates, and, and, he, and he got a bit frustrated. He didn't get his pace right early. So, you know, a couple of things like that. You have to be realistic and look at all the variables, but ultimately it's a pretty good um, – I think it's a pretty solid sort of recognition of what your pace might be. Yeah, and then I guess you're looking at overall Ks and kind of hilly long runs and that kind of uh, side of the training to prepare them for that that kind of leg strength in the last kind of 5, 7K. Like, because obviously that 15K, like, those boys be knocking that over pretty quick, like time on feet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's all they do that day. They might do a second run, but they, we don't add anything on outside of that. Um but uh, so it's just that that 15k is all they do that day. But I guess I still go back to um, what the most important run of the week is for a marathon is that long run. And what what we sort of suggested that we do with Jess in the early stages because she really wasn't running much. Um, well, in marathon context, she was maybe doing 140k at the most, training for 10k's and half marathons. So when we uh, decided to do a marathon, it wasn't like I was going to, you know, jack her up to uh, 200K and all the rest of it. It was like, you know, okay, we might get to 155, 160. And so we thought, well, we've got to get creative with how we use these long runs. And so we started doing things like, okay, pick up last half an hour. And she would be very impressive with this. She'd, she'd get out to two and a half hours, then she'd pick up over the last half an hour. And I still recall one day where she got down about 325 um, for the um, last part of that 
that two and a half hour run and it was because she jumped in a race so she got a little bit excited um but you know that to see that she could do that was rather impressive and sort of shows her strength but you know, you also got to look at the physiological um, benefits of doing that. You know, the glycogen depletion at mm. that stage and stressing your body, I think, is is a huge benefit. But I don't think it's the sort of thing you can do every week. So we phase it in at times, and we certainly don't do it every week leading into a mar- you know, in, into your taper. It, it probably is done fortnightly at most. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about Julian? Had this one about the current state of the setup of Australian kind of elite. Uh, distance groups, how they kind of uh, a bit in Sydney, a bit with the Melbourne Track Club. You guys are over in Adelaide. How do you see that current situation? Um, I guess endurance running is quite interesting. I mean, you, you do get a group effect from getting people together, and I think that's invaluable. But I think it's also a very um, – it's not an overly complex thing, distance running. So, like, I, I've, I coach athletes, you know, all around the country, um, and if they're independent enough, that I, I don't see any issues with that. Um, I think the, the the strength in Australia will be if we continue to set up groups, um, you know, um, in each sort of city. I mean, ultimately, like I said, there was this need for me to, or this feeling that I needed to go into state because it wasn't the strength to take me to the level I wanted to go to in Adelaide. I mean, that I never got to the level I thought I wanted uh, that I wanted to go to anyway, so it might have been rather irrelevant. But if we've actually got good coaching in each major city. Um, and hopefully more than one, you know, really good coach with experience at a high performance level, <coughs> then we've got a situation that when the talent comes through, there's someone to facilitate and nurture and foster that talent and get their potential out of them. So ultimately the aim, I think, for Australia needs to be to develop high performance level coaches in numerous areas. And the more of those coaches we have educated and prepared and experienced to do that, the better our country is going to be because it will mean that, that talent that um, that maybe is not prepared to move into state or whatever is going to be looked after, mm. um, and that's going to capture um, the you know the the potential of our country. I, I also think that you know that's something we do have to focus on is trying to get more coaches experienced, and, and it's a worthwhile investment um, for um, Athletics Australia, whoever, is to continually train these coaches up because. Ultimately, they're going to give back for, for many generations of runners, and so it's important to, to build that that effectively. Yeah, it's spread them all around the country. Like, you look at every town in Australia, like Little Ats is booming, but there's just that massive drop-off, um, maybe because there's just not the senior coaches to take them on later on in life. Yeah, and, and that, that being said, I mean, I think there's so many challenges to, to taking on, um, you know, maybe more specifically endurance running we can talk about, but... It's not an easy sport. I mean, it's obsessive and it's great, but it, it actually it, it does affect a number of areas of your life and it takes a lot of skill and it's something I'm really impressed with the athletes that I coach, the way they do manage that. And um, and and that's something that's really important because uh, it'd be easy to go home and sit on the couch and eat Tim Tams. Um, but if you, um, if you sort of have that opportunity, if you develop that love for it and you have a passion for it, um, it can be it can be quite absorbing of your whole life, so you've got to be very careful to keep some perspective on all of it. And as Madeline used to always say, you know, I'm only training to run around in circles fast. It's not it's not curing cancer or rocket science. Yeah. So uh, let's keep a bit of perspective on it. One foot in front of the other as fast as you can. Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, hey, current state of female and male Australian distance, or I guess marathon runners, as the marathon coach at the last olympics it must kind of excite you especially with the female marathoners at the moment and the guys are you know michael and liam 212 and chris hamer 213 lead into the com games 
Yeah, look, I, I think the women are doing a phenomenal job um, with with their marathoning, and um, and it's it's great to see. I mean, literally, it's going to take a two twenty nine um, to to get on the Commonwealth Games team for a female. I mean, uh, irrespective of what the qualifying time is, that just shows the standard of Australian marathoning. And if you look at uh, where they're positioning self, uh, themselves in Australia's um, all-time lists. I mean, you just have to recognise that this is probably a real, um, a real positive um, period for female marathoning. Um, and and you know, it, it does. You see one person break through, that gives belief for the next person to do it. And I think that's happened in Australia um, with female marathoning. And I think likewise, we have the potential for the same impact to happen uh, with the males. Uh, once we get someone under 210, there's going to be a whole lot of other people that are going to think, well, I can do that too. And they'll approach it with that belief that they can do it too. Um, Sorry you know, to interrupt, Adam, but what yep. have they got to do? Like, these guys, are, they're training hard, like I'm sure Michael Shelley and Liam Adams, and the talent's obviously there. So why haven't we seen that guy go under 210 for so long? Yeah, to, to be honest with you, I think it'd be naive of me to try and answer the question yeah. because I don't know enough about what Michael does. Yeah, I don't context, know enough yeah. about what, what Liam does. I mean, I, I haven't looked at their program. I haven't discussed that with them. I, I respect that their coaches are doing a great job. So, you know, it, it'd be unfair for me to make that, that comment. Um, but, I, look, I think we've got a whole lot of guys around that sort of 217, 218, which I hope to see go down to 214 and below. Um, you know, I've seen the capabilities of well, certainly Jack, who I coach. I'm really excited for what we can do with him in the future. Um, and, uh, and and certainly, you know, I've witnessed what Josh Harris has done on numerous occasions in training and, and, uh, and chatted a lot with him about his training and leading into certain marathons. So, you know, I, I have a lot of faith that he can really bring his time down as well. So, uh, you know, that sub 210, well, I mean, it, it's there for them. Um, I mean, I can I can certainly um, attest to the fact that that Michael Shelley's turning over every uh, every stone to try and um, to try and get himself there. I mean, uh, that, that guy's been unbelievably uh, consistent at that mm. two eleven, and and you know you sort of feel for him. You, you know that he's you know that, that he wants it, and and I, I think he's got a great chance of doing that. Um, Within his next marathon, I certainly think he's going to be rocking up on the Gold Coast with the capabilities of doing that to match anyone as a sub two ten runner. So um, Liam Adams is quite capable of that too, and um, and Chris Hamer, well, what a debut! It, yeah. It'll be exciting to see what he can go on with. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? And I guess for you being like in this position uh, leading into the home Commonwealth Games, it must excite you in your role as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, to 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 sort of even see the impact it can have on a on a city, um, I went to Melbourne Commonwealth Games as a spectator um, and uh, and just saw the buzz around it. And I think Commonwealth Games is really special to Australians. Um, so uh, to to be able to have some of the athletes that I work with being able to run in a home Commonwealth Games, major championship, whatever it is, world champs, Olympics. I mean, um, it's all very special to be able to get out there and do it on your home turf. So um, I know it's something that excites them. I know it's something that that people are putting a big emphasis on. But I I think. Ultimately, we have the opportunity to to see some outstanding performance by Australian athletes, and um, and and typically, I think um, as we as we sort of hope that they've got every um, facility, um, you know, leg up to to do that. So, Athletic Australia is doing a great job, from what I can see, to support people to do it. Um, and you know, the athletes and the coaches have to work really hard between now and then, and get on the line and and, and take care of it. Yeah, for sure. Hey, um, this is a bit generic, and I'm not sure if you can. It's probably similar to that question why those guys 
aren't breaking 210. But I was thinking of the listeners out there who are trying to break three hours and trying to break four hours. And I know you don't know their context and how much training they're actually doing a week. But one bit of advice as a pretty credentialed coach that you could give to those guys to get the best out of their running? I guess probably similar to something I said earlier about, you know, going to the marathon and people expecting you have to do more of everything. Um, I think I've seen, I coach with recreational runners. I, um, I have a um, business called Tempo Run Coach. Um, and so I do work, I've got about, um, we've got about eight, I think, from that business um, going over to uh, New York Marathon. And they range um, from from people who are, you know, uh, trying to get in the low three hours to people trying to break five hours. So, um, so in context with that, and, and I get asked the same question by all of them: Should my long run be longer? Um, mm. And I and I'll say similar to what I said earlier about the training for anyone is it should be in context of what you can progress towards and be healthy with. I mean, too many marathoners, um, even around that three hour level, um, that that non elite level, if, if you want to call it that, um, will basically. Uh, try and get out to uh, running, uh, you know, 40k or something like that close to the marathon. But you've got to think about the stress that puts on their bodies and the recovery. And I, I don't know that it's always the most conducive thing for them to improve. I think they've just got to take one step at a time. If they want to improve their time, maybe they've got to improve the way um, they bring some intensity into that long run rather than just go, I've got to try and hit 40k. It might be like with Kane, um, as I know he spoke to you about um, last week um, or the week before, it was not a case of uh, going into two and a half hours like Jess does. It was about going to two hours because I couldn't settle him down to the point on his long runs that I could safely take him out to two and a half hours. He'd, he'd basically be running a marathon with the pace he was doing it. Yeah. So I said, no, two, hour, two hours is enough for you, buddy. Um, any further, you're going to dig yourself a hole. So um, you, you just got to take those progressions, what's right for you, not not read a magazine article saying that you need to get this percentage of your um, your marathon uh, volume and all the rest of it. All of that's got to be irrespective. you just got to slowly progress things safely so that at least you get to the start line. And if you get there without a niggle, if you get there healthy, um, you've got a better chance of running the time you want. And I guess that leads into common mistakes people make, like is it jogging too fast or trying to go too close to race distance or just ones that have come across your desk in the past maybe six months that you you see and you just start cringing and shaking your head? Yeah, going too fast in the long runs is, is generally the, the way, but also just progressing too fast, um, trying to, trying to uh, do too much volume, too much intensity at the same time. Um, so session volumes increasing too too much, as I mentioned earlier as well. Um, you know, just being realistic with what you can do. That that's it. The, the biggest challenge I I sort of face with recreational runners is more the case of um, how do they manage things when that niggle occurs. Um, how do they recognize that, okay, I might need to back off for a couple of days. What does that look like? And, and ultimately, I don't think the athletes I work with in that realm really use me enough to sort of say, oh, this has been hurting a bit. What should I do? And more often than not, they're surprised at how little I give them in those coming days. Um, but I, again, it's the same thing. Keep your body healthy. Keep yourself uninjured. Um, stay running uh, more days than not, and you're going to get further. I mean, if you push yourself from something that might be two or three days off to a, a three-week injury, um, <coughs> it's, an, it's a no-brainer. 
Mm. And post-marathon, Adam, I know um, there's a few of us boys with post-marathon depression at the moment on the way back from Berlin and heaps of guys have just finished off at Melbourne. It's probably one thing that we don't focus on a lot. Um, you always focus on building up to the race and your long runs and your nutrition and all those kind of things, but then the marathon finishes up and you're, you're not really sure when to get back into things or um, how soon's too soon, but do you have a bit of a philosophy around that? Yeah, my philosophy aligns a lot with what Chris Wardlaw spoke to me about uh, when we first started in recovery, and I asked him that exact same question, and and he said, Adam, that, that generally it's uh, it's one day for every mile every you run mile, before yeah. you do anything with intensity, so you know it gives you about twenty six days. Um, so you're basically looking at about three weeks before you start doing anything in intensity, and then uh, so you know you can jog, but uh, you know honestly, uh, uh, I I like Michael Shelley's approach to it as he. He uh, takes a pair of shoes whenever he goes to an international marathon, and uh, and it, it's a pair of shoes that as soon as he sort of um, finishes a marathon, he throws out. This is his training shoes, um, and doesn't buy a new pair of shoes until he feels ready. He and wants to get back into training, and I always like that because I think often people are thinking the physical, but are failing to recognise the 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 mental and emotional uh, drain that preparing for such a big moment takes on you. Um, and even to even last year with Jess after Rio, I said you, you take as long as you want. If you want to, if you want to not run until you know start of next year, go for it. Um, you know, take whatever time you need. And when you feel ready to, to and motivated to get back into training, that's when we'll start training. So I think ultimately in those days after a, a marathon, you don't need to be going out running. You don't need to. Um, and those who are trying to capitalise on the the uh, training gain that they made from <laughs> uh, from doing the marathon is is just silly. I mean, you know, marathons aren't the sort of things that need to be run every week. So let's just be smart about it. I mean, I, I think when you look on load principles, that's a fairly significant load. It's a long, it's a hard run. So respect the race. Um, give yourself enough time to recover um, and then build up when your body's ready. I mean, one of the articles I read once um, when Jess was first starting marathoning was the, the neurological sort of um, trauma that your body goes through. And again, again, that was even suggested that it was, you know, close to three weeks before you sort of get that proprioception fully um, returning. And and I'd even say to Jess, uh, um, she'd come up to me at times, and, and, you know, this is not to make fun of Jess because ultimately um, it sort of just proves the point. Um, she goes, I feel really springy today, and, and I say, do you? I said, it doesn't look like it at all. And you sort of see people that that proprioception hasn't quite returned, and um, and that, they don't quite realise it because you're just not getting that feedback uh, effectively, and that's just the trauma of a marathon. So you have to just respect that. You have to... Um, you have to give yourself the time to recover from that and, and hopefully, um, hopefully, you know, uh, start setting yourself some ideas as to how you can do it better next time and then set your goal on what you're going to do next. Yeah, so, no point in yeah. rushing it back. No, exactly. Um, one thing you've learned about yourself, mate, through all these experiences is coaching and comm games at Glasgow and Rio and, um, yeah, kind of all the bird's nest over at the World Champs in uh, Beijing. Something you've um, learned about yourself through it all. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, to, well, I guess yeah, something I've learned is I'm a lot calmer under pressure than I ever thought I was. Um, like I said, I, I grew up as a pretty nervous kid, so I never kind of thought I was that cool sort of character under pressure. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I sort of went to London Olympics, and I know my heart was beating pretty hard uh, before the race. And, uh, and I thought, okay, just let's – I don't want Jess to think I'm nervous or anything because I really was, and I was pretty excited on the day, but I didn't want her to think I was stressed. And the, 
she she popped out from um, to to warm up and and I sort of got about a road's width away from her. Um, that that was the closest I could get. And she looks at me straight as she came out. She goes, "Geez, you look nervous." I go, oh, "Bugger, I've stuffed that one up." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, I'm actually not. I'm actually I'm pretty excited about today, you know." Um, and uh, and I thought, oh. and then she ran off. And I thought, oh, "Geez, I hope that doesn't rub off that she's stressed because she sees me stressed." But from that point, I remember going to Rio and. Um, prior to Maddie running in the steeplechase final. And, um, and I, I knew she was a good chance to, to run top eight there. So um, I, I was very hopeful, I guess. And I, I remember just taking my heart rate um, when I was in the middle of the warm-up track as she was doing her final strides. And, uh, and my heart rate was, um, was something like 54 or something like that. Yeah, I thought, right. okay, I think I've taken, I've taken on that. But like I said earlier, that comes with a bit of maturity that comes with the opportunity to be experienced in that situation. Um, and so, you know, no doubt there'll be things that rattle me from time to time, but yeah, I don't know. It's something that comes over me in those experiences where, where I, I generally feel like I can cope with situations better than I would in any other day of my life. So, um, yeah, it, it's a bit weird. Um, I don't, don't know how to explain it, but that's probably good characteristic to have though, I reckon in uh, high pressure situations. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Hey, mate, the final question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast is if they have a mantra or a life quote or a philosophy that they try to live by, hang above their bed, whatever it may be. Have you got anything? Uh, <laughs> one I've had for about 10 years, um, and it's a, it's a bit of a joke with some of my guys, but it's a, it's never trust a man with a ponytail. Um, <laughs> well, man buns <laughs> back in. Just don't see a point in them. Um, but uh, no, that's just a bit of a joke. But uh, that, that's rule number one. No, no, not really. I don't don't really have a mantra. I guess I guess the closest thing I have to a, a coaching philosophy. And I had this discussion with some coaches the other day. Everyone's always pushing. You need to have a coaching philosophy. And and I think that mine evolves as my experience evolves. Um, but what always comes down to something that's sound within my approach as a coach is to um, promote a balanced approach to, to training. So that means in how you approach it, um, in perspective, in making sure that you're factoring in other aspects of your life and not just getting too obsessed and absorbed with your running. So if that means um, you know, your work, you need to invest a bit of time in, or your family, that has to be catered for because at the end of the day, <coughs> if those areas of your life are going to crap, then that's probably going to stress you out and impact on your running anyway. So that's probably um, my, the, you know, the, the, the probably the thing that athletes that hopefully have sort of taken away from my approach is to have that balance. And, and probably as a coach, I, I recognize that as well. And sometimes I feel like I let athletes down by not getting out to a race or whatever have you. But I, I hate to say it, but my family is my number one, and and I um and, and I think my athletes need to um recognise that I, it, to me it's worse if I let them down than my athletes. As much as I put a lot of pride in what I do as a coach, um, there's perspective there, and hopefully that perspective uh, supports my approach to athletes, and they can learn from that to to do the same. Yeah, and if that keeps you healthy as a person and in a good mood, of course, they'd want to be dealing with you in that mood rather than um, yeah, annoyed that you're not with your family. Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean, I there, there's a lot to that. I mean, um, you know, I, I I really value the relationship I have with my kids and my, and my wife, and um, and if that wasn't uh, positive for me, I, I don't know how I'd operate effectively as a coach either. Yeah, beautiful, mate. Hey, where can people find you online if they want to get in contact? Yeah, so uh, website that we've currently got rolling is temporuncoach.com. Um, and yeah, there's there's obviously I'm on I'm on Instagram and, and Facebook and the likes. Um, Team Tempo is the the competitive side of our, our, our business. 
Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we generally have a lot of updates and things on Facebook and, and the rest of it. And I've got some pretty clever guys in our group, Matt and Andy Axford, who, who make us look better than we are. But They're uh, good on Stra- good on um, Instagram, those boys. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they're good. And up to Falls Creek, you guys heading up there over Christmas in summer? No, years? Not, not heading to Falls Creek. Um, I haven't for quite some time, and um, it's just about timing and, and affordability for for athletes coming from Adelaide. Um, it, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm this year looking to have a, a training camp in Adelaide, um, in you know, based around Kuiper Forest, so you know, about 40 minutes out of Adelaide. Um, just so that the athletes can have a bit of access to work. I mean, like I said earlier, uh, Adelaide's a great training environment, but we recognise we have to get out and race a little bit. So if going to Falls Creek affected the, the athletes' finances that they didn't race, I don't really see a point in it. And, um, and you know, with uni students and the likes, I think it's important just to keep all of that in perspective. And, yeah, that, we'll, we'll set something up at Adelaide. Back to that balance quote. Correct, yeah. Spot on, mate. Thanks again for your time. It's really, uh, it's been really good talking, running, and getting into the marathon stuff. And yeah, I really appreciate um, giving us the opportunity to talk to you. And I'm sure there'd be so many listeners that would uh, get some pearls of wisdom out of that chat tonight. Anytime, Brady. No worries at all. Thanks, Adam. Thanks.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 